Yeah, well, as Rich said and Ken said, Lent is upon us here. We'll be talking a little bit about our church Lenten prayer practices in just a little bit. But first, I want to start by introducing us to the book that we're using as the inspiration for our Lenten sermon series. And it's a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. There, it's by the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman. It's a, a classic book. And we chose this particular book because so many people in our culture, and I think probably here, including me, have been feeling pretty vulnerable post-election. And so it's a good time for us to get a grounding in the Christian tradition of social justice theology. So Thurman starts out his book with a story that I think might be helpful for us in understanding his approach to Jesus. And the setting is this. So it's about 1935. And at the time he was serving as the Dean of the Rankin Chapel at Howard University. And he was also on staff with the divinity program there. And so in his role at Howard, he was overseeing a group of students that went on a pilgrimage of friendship, a pilgrimage of friendship to India, Burma, and what is today Sri Lanka. And so Thurman's in Sri Lanka when the principal of the law college at the University of Colombo approaches him and asks him to have coffee. And so he says, sure, I would do that. So the two of them go to coffee. He's with this Sri Lankan Hindu man. And oddly, they're drinking their coffee in silence. And it's a little bit awkward. And when they get done and their coffee cups are taken away, the man turns to him and he just asks, why are you here? Like, I know, friendship, pilgrimage, blah, blah, blah. But why are you here? And the man goes on, and I'm just going to paraphrase what he said to Howard Thurman. He said, this is what I mean. You're a black man. And more than 300 years ago, your forefathers were taken from the west coast of Africa as slaves. And the people who dealt in that slave traffic were Christians. And in fact, the name of one of the most famous British slave um, ships was Jesus. And the men who bought the slaves in the New World were Christians. And Christian ministers who were quoting the Christian apostle Paul gave the sanction of religion to the entire system of slavery. Well, some 70 years or more ago, you were freed. I think he's talking about by Abraham Lincoln here. He says by a man who was not a Christian but rather was the spearhead of a certain political, social, and economic process. And during all of the periods since the Civil War, you've lived in a country where you've been segregated, you've been lynched, you've been burned. The 1930s was like the height of the resurgence of the KKK and all of the mob lynchings. And he said, even in the church, I understand their segregation. He said, one of my law students from here in Sri Lanka came over to the United States to study, and he sent me a clipping from a newspaper. And it talked about a church where the white worshipers were there having church when they interrupted their service to go and join a white lynching mob. And they went out and they did the deed and then they came back and they continued worshiping this Christian God. And he said, I'm a Hindu. And I just have to say, I don't understand. You're here, you're in my country, you're representing a faith tradition and you're standing like right in the heart of it. And I don't mean to seem rude to you, but from my perspective, it seems to me like you're a traitor of the darker people of the earth. It seems like you've chosen to stand on the side of power and oppression against your own people. And I'm just wondering how you as an intelligent man, what can you say in defense of your position? And Howard Thurman, he didn't take it offensively. He said, you know, it felt like a really honest question. You know, what, what are you doing? Why are you joined up with the oppressors? And so he gives him an honest response, a response that took five hours that he's then summed up here in Jesus and the Disinherited. And he starts by saying that Christianity has, at its heart, a missionary impulse. 
And what he means by that is that we have a reflex that's based on Jesus' teachings to share our faith and to share our resources with other people. And he says this reflex isn't in and of itself bad. He said it's good and it's natural that if you found faith in Jesus to be helpful in your life, that you would share that with your friends. And it's a wonderful instinct for people who have more resources to be able to share them with people who have fewer resources. Caring for the poor is an essential element of our faith. However, Howard Thurman warns us that that good impulse can very easily become distorted. That when we start to view the world as like us having what they need, it's hard, he says, not to start to have a little bit of contempt for the recipients of our aid. Even if it's just a tiny amount of contempt. And this way of seeing ourselves as like the haves and them as the have-nots can lead us to viewing ourselves self-righteously. And he says, taken even further, it's actually seeded really racist worldviews. And it manifests in things that sound like this. Like in our country, well, we, we've let you come into our country and we've helped you. And we felt good about that, but enough is enough. Now you need to go back to your own country, right? Treating people with contempt for the need. And when we start to see ourselves as the more powerful in a giving relationship, we have to be on guard for these kinds of feelings of entitlement and contempt. And he says, on the other hand, when we're in the powerless position, we need to remember our value and our worth as humans as we're being treated poorly. So I know I personally have been both ends of this spectrum, as of probably many of you. I know that I've used my power as an American at times to think of myself as like having something to offer those poor other people who lack what I lack or what lack what I have. And I've also been on the receiving end of having need only to have people who helped me with that need grow contemptuous toward me because of that need. And if we're the person with power in a situation, we have to remember that we need to view other people as equal in dignity and, no, and humanity, no matter what their position is in life. So an example I was thinking about, I was remembering, I was talking with a, a, an old congregant long ago, we're talking years ago, and she was telling me that she had offered her niece a room in her house, and she had a really, really large house while her niece was attending U of M. And so she told her niece that she could stay there, no strings attached, so that she could help her out because she didn't have much money. But then after a few months, this woman started to grow contemptuous of her niece. And that's when she came to me as a pastor on staff, I guess, and she's like, I don't understand. She never offers to babysit my four children. She doesn't clean the house. And so I was talking to her and I said, well, you know, was that part of your original agreement? And she said, well, no, but you would think that since she's living with us, she would offer. Niece is 18. <laughs> and I asked, well, is, is your niece kind? I mean, is she otherwise okay to live with? And she's like, well, yeah, she's hardly here because she's a student, but yeah, she's fine. In other words, this woman felt like her niece owed her. And she was being really passive aggressive toward her and was actually considering asking her move out. I don't think her niece knew this. And I just remember thinking, gosh, if I were your niece, I think I would rather be paying money than sort of living with your unsaid expectations. And so I tried to talk to her gently about it, but it was pretty clear that she felt owed and she was ready to use her power of owning a house and of having an extra room to lend out to someone who needed it. She was ready to use her power to kick her niece out if her niece didn't do what she asked her. And I just said, yeah, it's fair to ask somebody to do something in return, but you have to make those expectations known up front. Otherwise, it turns into one of these sort of distorted giver-receiver relationships, this power dynamic that Howard Thurman is talking about, happening in a macrocosm here that oftentimes happens also in a macrocosm. 
that where people with power give and then feel owed, like they're better than, and then that causes them to look down on or to treat as less than people who don't have as much. So what Thurman told the Sri Lankan lawyer was that when he studied Jesus, he saw a different power dynamic modeled. He saw that the Christian impulse of sharing and giving was done in a way that gave dignity and honor to all people, rich as well as poor, right? Because as God incarnate, like you think God, he could come down as anyone, but he didn't come down like robed in like power and a scepter with a big fur coat. He didn't come down as the leader of the Roman Empire, just sort of benevolently throwing out cash, saying like, you owe me or else you're kicked out of heaven. He didn't, he came down as a powerless person and he invited people to imitate him in laying down their own power, right? He was them. He became the poor and the outcast. And so in doing that, God treated all of the thems of this world as equals by making himself their equal, by manifesting in human form without a lot of power. And then he told us that that way of living would bring us life. And in that way, Jesus taught those of us who have more power how to relinquish our privilege. And I don't think that means that we need to literally become poor or powerless if we are not poor and powerless, but it means that we have to understand that our things and our money do not define us or give us any right to treat people disrespectfully or to feel like they owe us something in life. Right? And when Jesus saw someone who wasn't able to relinquish the money or the power that money gave him, he challenged them. This is from Mark 10, 17 to 23 says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone, which is odd in a whole nother sermon. <laughs> we'll go through that. And then he keeps talking. Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You must not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father, father and mother. And teacher, he said, I've, I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. And this is interesting. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Like he was moved by this man. And he said, you know, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, you know, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Jesus knew that this man followed all of the religious rules, but he could see that the man was attached to his wealth. Right? He was attached to the prestige and to the power and to the respect that it brought him. There's other wealthy people in scripture who are Jesus followers and he doesn't tell them to go and sell everything. Right? Having money in and of itself doesn't seem to be the issue. It's the heart that's the issue. And Jesus had a lot of compassion on this man, right? It says he looked at him and he loved him because he knows how difficult it is to have this attitude of detachment for money and power. So that's why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because the temptation to use our riches as power is great and it's so depressingly human. So Thurman deals with the flip side of this dynamic for most of the rest of the book. He talks about what it is to be the person who's in the powerless position. And when we have less power in society, we have to remember to view ourselves as having worth, regardless of how we're treated, to not let those who have power strip us of our inherent dignity and humanity. And I would say that many of us here in this room will experience both ends of this spectrum at some time. 
you know, it's complicated. I'm a queer female, but I'm also a white educated American. So sometimes I hold power in a situation and sometimes I don't. And Thurman notes in a time when many scholars were ignoring that Jesus was a Jew, right? This was the 1930s. Some of them were claiming he wasn't actually a Jew at all, that Paul had made that up. That was some of the Nazi church's um, theology. He's affirming that Jesus was indeed born a Jew in the Roman Empire. And he makes note that he didn't have any of the rights of Roman citizenship. He didn't have any imperial rights in his own land, right? Just as we have certain rights as citizens of the United States, if we're citizens, right? We have the right to remain silent. We have the right not to incriminate ourselves. We have a right to a fair trial, tried by a jury of our peers, right? At least those of us who are white expect to be treated well. White privilege alert, but... Roman citizens in Jesus' day had the right to appeal to Caesar if they felt like they were being treated unjustly in a lower court. And Jesus didn't have those rights. You know, much like illegal immigrants don't have rights in our country. Like Jesus was subject to Roman oppression and was a second-class citizen in the Roman Empire. And the Jews themselves as a people had been perpetual scapegoats throughout history, right? These are underdogs who despite all that has come against them and all the hatred that has manifest over and over again in history and which we have seen manifest again in our country in this last month, they're the underdogs who managed to survive. And in that context of Jesus being born into a people who are survivors and into a time when he and his people had little political or economic or social power, Jesus knew what it was to be mistreated and discriminated against. And he also knew some tactics for how to fight the indignity of it. And Thurman says, he says, we have to understand the psychology of being a minority in an oppressive system. We have to understand the psychology of that. We have to understand the kinds of reactions and responses that the various Jewish groups had to being under this hostile rule. And then he compared the situations of the Jews in Jesus' time with the situation of black people in America. And it really applies to anyone feeling under threat. And he calls the emotions that bubble up in the oppressed, he calls these three emotions the three hounds of hell. And he says the emotions they tend to deal with are hatred, fear, and hypocrisy. And he says dealing with these um, are the three major sort of tasks of the follower of Jesus who is oppressed. And so for the next three weeks, those are going to be the sermon topics, hatred, fear, and hypocrisy. And then Thurman ends his book with a chapter on love. So taking it back to his conversation with that lawyer in Sri Lanka, Thurman explains that he sees Jesus as being for the subjugated and that he's here primarily to relate to and to teach people who are under threat and that it's a distortion of Christianity to use the faith to prop up unjust power systems it's when Christianity becomes co-opted by unreflective power groups. That's when it gets used as a sword against the vulnerable. But its very essence, Christianity's very essence is revolutionary. Right? It's a way of believing that empowers the weak. So quite a lot of what Thurman opens with in this book requires us to check our hearts in relation to others and in relation to God. And at Blue Ocean, we talk a lot about connecting to ourselves and each other and to God and the world. And we like to use the Lenten season here to focus on different prayer and meditative practices that can help us do this. So Ken opened last week, if you missed it, he was talking about those various prayer practices. I'm going to breeze over them, but I do wanna focus um, 
on my big ask. I wanna focus on one of those, and it's the one that I think helps us connect to ourselves and to God the most. So our three prayer practices for Lent, if you're new, are we do our big ask, pray for my six, and my big ask. So for our big ask, we're asking for something collectively as a church. And so as the staff was thinking about it and praying about it, we felt like we wanted to ask God for something really simple that we were feeling in need of and felt like maybe many of you guys were as well, and that was joy. You know, it's a time when our culture feels really anxious and a little uncertain, and we're like, you know, we just want God to give us a little bit more joy as a congregation. So that's the first one. Praying for our six involves just choosing six people who are maybe somewhat peripheral in your life and praying for them every day. And I use a very, very simple prayer to do that. I just say, okay, Lord, I ask that you would help them to experience more of your presence in their life, however that might look or feel to them. And then our third one is my big ask. And this is where we ask for God for something personal for ourselves every single day leading up to Easter. And this practice sometimes raises questions for people, especially some of you who have been doing this for a few years now. You know, for some of you, you'll be praying every day for yourself and you're like, yeah, I can see where God is answering my prayer. I can see where he's in the process of that. But for others of you, you might think, gosh, you know, like, why isn't my prayer getting answered? Does God not like me? Is he not listening to me? And buried beneath questions like that, I think lie even more questions. And they're questions about God's character. Like, is God even good? Or are there questions about how faith works in the world? Like, what's the Christian framework and worldview? I mean, does prayer even work in the here and the now? So I'm going to toss out an idea that's been helpful to me, and you can feel free to disregard it if it's not helpful to you. I spoke on this a little bit last spring, I think. And that's this. I tend to toward what's called an open view of God. An open view of God says that perhaps God chooses to not know certain things. He chooses to not know certain things that he could know in order for us humans to have real relationship with him. Right, so my desire isn't to have my wife, Rachel, tell me that she loves me because she feels like she has to or she's been programmed to by God. I want her to tell her that she loves me because she wants to and she trusts me. And if you think about that, maybe that's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. He doesn't want us to be in relationship with him because we feel like he already knows everything or we have to tell him. Maybe he's waiting for us to open up to him because we trust him and we love him. So if this God can choose to not know with certainty how we humans behave, he could make pretty good guesses about us. Right? He can still know us better than we know ourselves just by observing us in all the various situations of our lives. He can intimately know our character. He can intimately know our boundaries. And so he can know us as well as we know ourselves enough to predict how we might act given a certain set of circumstances. Circumstances that he can and I think sometimes does influence. But he chooses not to be able to say with 100% certainty what we're going to do. Right, and that gives us free will as like free agents in this world. And so this idea of God choosing to not know some things is actually pretty widely held in the African-American churches as well as among some Methodists and Charismatics. The idea that there's some amount of unpredictability in the way that God relates to the world. And I think it reflects some of what we've been learning from science. So for you scientists out there, like in quantum physics, like if you look at chaos theory or emergence theory, I read a book on emergence theory last year that was fascinating. We've learned that complex systems incorporate some degree of unpredictability, even on an individual level, right? It's much 
easier to predict the, lar like the large picture, big picture outcome of a complex system than it is to, prevent, uh, to predict individual outcomes. So let me give a couple examples. So like take the weather. Right, meteorologists, they can say with some degree of certainty that a large weather system is going to come across Michigan around three o'clock tomorrow and it could have some tornadoes. But they can't say with any certainty when or where or even if the tornadoes will touch down. Or if you take advertising, you know, Mountain Dew might spend millions and millions of dollars to put out a national ad campaign and they can predict the large scale outcome of that. You know, that sales are going to boom, they're going to grow but they can't predict with any certainty whether any one particular person's going to buy a Mountain Dew. They can't predict if Rachel's going to buy one. They can probably assume Brad is going to. That's why I was looking at Brad. <laughs> right there. And so I've come to, <laughs> yeah, has you got it? 100% certainty. <laughs> I actually was thinking of you when I, wrote the, uh, when I wrote the example, Brad. I was like, he'll be right in front, it'll be great. <laughs> So this, this view of God is not like a test of orthodoxy. There's, di there's different ways that the church views God. But for me, it's been helpful to think of the kingdom of God or to think of the global church in a similar way, right? That it's a big complex system that God has created and he can predict the end picture pr um, pretty accurately. But it can be hard to predict how individuals are going to act because we're free agents within this complex system able to make choices about whether or not we're going to bring God's love and justice and peace into the world. And I also believe that the witness of scripture tells us that prayer can actually impact this complex system that is our reality. Right, Ezekiel 22, we're told that God was looking for someone, he was looking for anyone to pray to help change the circumstances of the people. And there are numerous accounts where prayer is said to change the course of events or even to change God's mind. And in fact, this view of how God works, I think it actually becomes even more important that we pray because it seems like we can, in fact, influence the world around us and help create some of the circumstances that help God move. Right? A world with free agents that's dynamic and interactive. So with that said, you might say, okay, well, what does this have to do with our leap of faith, my big ask? Well, I'd say like maybe your personal big ask involves another person. And my view of God is that he doesn't force people to do things. Right? He might involve, um, invite them to do things. He might set up circumstances that make it much more likely that they'll do things. But he doesn't force people into relationships. He doesn't force people to apologize. He doesn't force people to stop with their addictions. I think we can help with that, but they still have a choice, right? So your prayer may or may not get answered based on other people's choices. Sometimes we don't get what we ask for because maybe it's not good for us. And in that case, we might just dialogue with God about maybe why he doesn't think that it's good for us. We maintain that childlike faith that Ken talked about last week in relation to God, where we trust that God is our good father and that he wants our best. Sometimes I don't think we get what we ask for because maybe the timing isn't right or maybe God hasn't had the time to set up the circumstances that could allow for that need to be addressed. I know like Natalie Chin had a really great story about that that maybe we'll share next week. I don't think I have time to do it, but where it felt like the timing, like a year after her big ask, it felt like it got answered in a very specific way. And when we ask for things that are really specific, I think it can give us space to explore why we want what we specifically asked for. So for an example, let's say if you're asking God to give you a promotion at work and you're asking for a specific salary, but you haven't gotten one, it might be worth exploring why you want the promotion. Is it because you're anxious about money? 
Is it because you want to be successful in your vocation? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be good at what you do. Maybe God will address those deeper needs, these deeper desires that underlie your request in ways that you don't expect. Like maybe a promotion isn't the answer to your anxiety about money. Or maybe it's not the best path for success in your career, but God might answer those things in another way as time goes on that turns out to actually be better and maybe is more uh, answers closer to what your heart was actually longing for. And then sometimes why things happen or not is just a mystery. You know, I'm no answer machine, Ken's no answer machine. And in the end, we can only piece together what we know of God from our own experience and from the experience of, of the scripture and of people who have lived through the ages. You know, many people feel like they have seen some results from their prayers, and I think that at the very least, most people appreciate the Lenten experience as a time where we're able to reboot our connection and our intimacy with God. So that's my major hope as a pastor, is that we will have more connection with God during this Lent. And with that, let's take our two to three minutes of silence and guided meditation. If you're new, we like to end our, our sermons with a little bit of just quiet I can guide a little bit of the prayer and people and children make noise so it doesn't need to be exactly quiet, but we'll just dial down a little bit here. Get comfortable, focus on your breathing. And as you're slowing down, Begin to envision Jesus, however you picture Jesus, coming toward you. You might pay attention to the setting where you're at. You might pay attention to how he's dressed, how he looks, what his mood is. as you picture him coming up closer to you, just remember that he's not a God who has contempt on you because of his power status, but he's a God that looks on you with love. And as you imagine that, maybe think of a circumstance in your life this week that's causing you a lot of anxiety. You could think of a person, you could think of a situation at work with your kids. Let's just focus on sort of imagining that situation or that person out in front of us and we just call Jesus' attention to it and invite him to look at it with us. Jesus may or may not be saying anything, but if he is, just sort of note, or note if you're saying anything to him in your mind.
Often by spending a little time meditating on the scripture, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And you can either imagine it applying to that situation or just in general. And so on your in-breath, think the joy of the Lord and on your out-breath is my strength. Let's just do a few rounds of that. Let me close by praying our communal Lenten prayer. Lord, increase our joy in the midst of trouble. We release our fears and anxieties to you. Let your light shine in us and overflow through us. Amen.